0: A friend of mine has a ritual that she engages at the beginning of every new calendar year. Instead of making a New Year's resolution, my friend chooses a word. It's going to be her word for the year. It's a word that she's willing to commit to for an entire year, which can be a a daunting proposal in some ways. So uh, she asked me, what's your word for this year? And I said, well, I'll get back to you on that. We we did this exercise in staff meeting a couple weeks ago, um, and the temptation, if you're going to commit to a word for a year, is to pick something that's broad enough to like cram a whole year into, so mostly people are picking words like joy and blessing and things like that. Um, I, I've, been, I've been looking for the right word to capture what I sense this year is, at least so far, is, is about for me. It's not pruning, it's not um, decluttering, although practically that's how it's manifesting it, itself now. Um, but I finally heard my word in, in the gospel story that we, just, that we just read this morning. I think my 2019 word is winnowing. John the Baptist says of Jesus, his winnowing fork is in his hand. John is drawing on a, on a first-century metaphor, it's a farming tool, a winnowing, a winnowing fork, um, as, a, as a way of understanding how Jesus is going to engage his public ministry. A winnowing fork or a winnowing fan, sometimes it's a, a kind of a fan-like instrument, it was kind of a pronged tool about the size of a garden shovel, a garden trowel, uh, and the wheat farmer would use it to scoop up a bunch of wheat stalks and separate out the kernel, the edible part, the grain, from the feathery husk that contained it. The husk was lighter, it would sort of float downwind, it might be gathered up and used for food for animals or fuel for a fire, and the heavier grain, the usable part, would drop down onto the threshing floor where it would be gathered up and ground into flour for making bread. That is how John imagines Jesus in this morning's gospel, standing on this great cosmic threshing floor, separating out the wheat from the chaff. He gathers the wheat into his granary, John says, of Jesus, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That sounds slightly ominous to me. Maybe it does to you. Unquenchable fire, at least to those of us who were raised with these kind of Dantean images of hellfire and damnation, that sounds like the place that you do not want to end up. You don't want to be the chaff, right? We imagine Jesus as a kind of, you know, elevator doorman, deciding whether you go up or whether you go down, and you don't want to go down. And certainly, what we know about John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, is that he was a fiery, take-no-prisoners kind of preacher. Hellfire and damnation would not have been off-limits for this guy. He wasn't worried about offending you. That was actually what he was trying to do. So John actually doesn't say anything here about hell, He doesn't say anything about suffering or eternal damnation. Separating out the wheat from the chaff may not actually be, for John anyway, about deciding who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. It might actually be about something very different, which raises this interesting question of what the gospel writer Luke means when he puts these words into John's mouth. When John says Jesus is about winnowing, what is he winnowing? I mean, it's an organic metaphor, right? The, the grain and the chaff are both part of the same organism. They're both a part of the wheat. And from the perspective of the wheat farmer... Both the wheat and the chaff serve a pretty important purpose, right? The grain is the food part, obviously, but the chaff is actually uh, just another name for the leftover part of the husk. That's actually the the protective skin that has grown over the grain of wheat while it grows. The husk is is a necessary part of the growing process. It's not digestible by humans, so it needs to be sorted out before you mill the thing. That's actually the moment when the usable husk becomes the discardable chaff, the moment that it is no longer usable, we rename it as chaff. But it's not actually chaff. That's just leftover husk. The wheat farmer is gathering up all this grain to be stored in his granary. The chaff, he burns, he uses it for fuel. So even if we don't read a kind of heavy-handed image of judgment and damnation in that phrase, unquenchable fire, if we, actually, if we actually turn to a much more literal translation of what that phrase means, we might translate it something actually as the flame of resilience. The Greek word is asbesto. That's where we get our word for the you know, the the minerals that you don't want in your insulation, right? Because we know that they cause bad health problems. But for the ancients, asbestos was a symbol of, of resilience, of something that could not be compromised. It held its integrity in the midst of great heat and great pressure and great cold. So an alternative way to translate John's image would be to hear him saying something like, Jesus' winnowing fork is in his hand to separate the grain from its husk. The grain he will gather into the granary and the husk he will use also to make make a, a resilient flame, to make an eternal fire. Many of us do not have a lot of time for the chaff in our lives. We're a a few weeks into a new year. January, for many of us, is a time for house cleaning, it's a time for making New Year's resolutions, starting fresh and clean and new with a new year. We're relentless self-improvers, right? There's a reason that self-improvement books are, are huge. Anything that gets in the way of my ideal self for 2019 is easy for me to consider as so much chaff, to be thrown into the ovens and burnt. I do not have a lot of patience in my life, I don't have a lot of time in my life to deal with chaff. Another word for chaff might be clutter. I'm, uh, I'm three steps into the Marie Kondo tidying process. I've gone through my clothes, I've gone through my books, I'm now on kimono, that's her word for everything else, right? Everything that we keep in our homes, dishes and towels and tablecloths and hammers and soaps, and I mean, you start pile. and her, her advice is, don't do it room by room. Bring everything into one big pile. Oh, so my living room is a mess right now. It's like everything I own is spread out over every surface. Um, it's, it's kind of total chaos. But this is the way that you sort through it, right? She, she says, the key here is to figure out which items spark joy for you. If it sparks joy, you keep it, no matter what it is. And if it doesn't spark joy, even if it's something you think you need, you toss it. You get rid of it, right? So what I've discovered, it, to my dismay, um, well, she, she has you go through this process, right? And it's, and it's actually kind of an involved process. It took me a while to figure out what it meant for something to spark joy for me. Marie Kondo says, like, hold it, like, pick it up, handle it, maybe smell it if it's a cloth thing, Uh, Let it it be in relationship to your body. She says, you'll know, you'll start to recognize what it feels like when something sparks joy for you, and what it feels like when something does not spark joy for you. And that's actually been the really interesting thing for me. What I've realized is that there's actually not not a lot of things that I own that genuinely spark joy for me. I mean, I'm hanging on to all kinds of stuff in my life for a lot of different reasons that have nothing to do with joy and have a whole lot to do with anxiety and pretensions and some kind of idealized, fantasy version of myself. So what's been revolutionary for me about Marie Kondo's approach is not just learning how to recognize when something sparks joy, but this almost ritual process that she asks you to undergo as you shed the stuff in your life that no longer sparks joy for you. Marie Kondo says, you don't, you don't just toss it away. You don't just throw it on the recycle heap. You thank it. You honor it. And then, you set it free to do what it needs to do in the world. That's a process that takes some getting used to, right? It feels kind of silly at first, say, like, green sweater, I liked the way that I looked when I bought you, and you've kept me very warm, so thank you very much. Goodbye. (laughs) I mean, that feels weird, right, to say, Cuisinart hand blender, I thought I would make soup with you every weekend. I have never taken you out of the box. You deserve to go to someone who will use you in the way that you have been made to be used. Thank you for teaching me this about myself. I mean, everything we own has a story, doesn't it? Everything we own tells us something about who we are, who we aspire to be, who we think we are, who we used to be, right? Everything has a secret life. And everything deserves, Marie Kondo thinks, Everything deserves to be treasured and to be used, or to be set free to find another home in the world. If that sounds a little woo-woo, I mean, there's a reason her book is called The Magic Art of Tidying Up. It feels a little bit like magic sometimes, actually. Sometimes the thing we need in our lives is a little bit of magic. Because many of us, I think, tend to be kind of relentless, unforgiving declutterers. I have been this way, right? Just get rid of as much as you can. And I assume that God works that way too, right? That God is eager to help me discard the parts of myself that no longer serve God's purpose. Maybe God is ready to, you know, toss entire people, entire groups of people, people with whom I disagree politically, religiously, whatever. Like, maybe God's just, like, throwing people onto the burn heap, right? I work that way. Why shouldn't God work that way, too? And our instincts seem to be confirmed by what John is saying about Jesus the great winnower, right? separating out the wheat from the chaff. But if we look at this metaphor more closely, we see that even the chaff has a role to play, right? The chaff is not the damned thing. It's a part of the wheat that is now no longer necessary. It's the husk that protected a vulnerable grain and now it's time to let it go so that that husk can do what it needs to do and so that the grain can be used for what it was grown to do. And I have a lot of stuff like that in my life. I have a lot of husks that once I used to protect myself against fear and anxiety, props that I used to, you know, make me into the person that I thought I was supposed to be. And if there's a fault here, the fault does not lie with the stuff. The fault doesn't lie with the husk. The fault doesn't lie with the chaff. The fault lies in me, and the change has to start in me. So I've been learning how to winnow gently, how to let go of the stuff in my life that I am ready to to set free, and also how then to let go of some of the deeper stuff in me that it begins to give rise to, ways of, of being in the world that no longer serve me, stories that I've told myself about who I am that maybe aren't true anymore. I think we're always in a process of shedding husks, of preserving a germ of wheat that we need to move forward, and losing the outer skin that maybe no longer fits as well as it used to. The challenge is learning how to do that, not in a vindictive, judgmental way, but in a way that honors the role that it once played for us, in a way that, that honors the person we used to be. That's learning how to let go gently, and with intention and integrity. It's real winnowing, right? Which is not breaking up the world into the good and the bad, the sheep and the goats, the wheat and the chaff, whatever, and then throwing half of it away. Instead, it's recognizing that even the chaff serves a purpose. Sometimes the goats are more helpful than sheep, and that what I consider to be the bad people might actually serve somebody quite well indeed. And gradually, sorting by sorting, winnowing by winnowing, I learn how to see the world in the way that God sees it, because there's no chaff in God's economy. There's no detritus, there's no rejects, there's no outcasts. Everything and everybody has a role to play. In a moment, we're going to gather up at this font. We're going to support one of our own families as they make a bunch of promises. They're audacious promises in this ritual of welcome and initiation. And baptism, it seems to me, is like a kind of, it's a kind of winnowing ritual. In some stuff, in some ways, what we're invited to do is bring, like, the entirety of our lives, all the good stuff, all the bad stuff, all the stuff that we're lugging around with us, and we lay it out like I did in my living room, right? You can imagine, like, this whole front of the cathedral just strewn with the stuff of your life, right? Some of it serves you, some of it will help you move forward, a lot of it will not but all of it's precious, all of it's a piece of what has made us into the people that we are. And then one of us goes ritually into the water. They symbolically die to everything that has come before. When that happened to me, I assumed that when I came back up out of the water, I would feel something, I would feel different, but I didn't. I've talked to many of you who have under, undergone this, this ritual as teenagers as and an adults, and you've said similar things. I thought I would feel different, and I didn't. What came back up out of the water was actually the same old me, a little bit wetter, but, uh, but the baptized me is just me with a candle, and apparently I belong to Jesus now. Nothing has changed. Well, in a deeper way, I think everything has changed, but baptism, like a, like a wedding, is not about just the ritual moment. It's about everything that comes after it. We have the rest of our lives to make sense of this this winnowing ritual that God is asking us to undergo, this constant process of sifting out the wheat from the chaff, letting go of the husks that we used once to protect us, and maintaining, holding on to that seed at the center. That's baptism in its truest form. It's that process of sifting through our lives in the light of these incredible promises we make, determining what we need to keep, what we need to hold on to, what we need to treasure, and what it is time to let go. That's the baptism that John talks about Jesus doing, not baptism by water. John says, I baptize you by water, anybody can do that. The baptism that Jesus offers is a baptism by the Spirit and by fire. Maybe that's the eternal flame, right? The baptism which is our lives, which takes us right up to that final breath that we take on this earth, that last and and ultimate baptism, really, when we go down into the water of death itself. And we trust that we will come back up having shed that last and most tenacious hole, that last bit of chaff, which is this body that God has created, the most elemental thing I possess, and someday it too will be fuel for the fire. And who knows what the larger life looks like on the other side of that great winnowing. What I believe, what I, what I trust, what I've staked my life on is that the kernel of wheat that God has preserved and planted in me throughout all of these various purgings and winnowings and Marie of my life, I trust that the kernel of self that God gave me at my baptism will be preserved. It will be fully mine, even when I shed the husk of this body. I trust that the God who created and loves me is going to give me back my real self, because nothing gets lost in God's economy, not even the chaff. If there is an unquenchable fire that's fueled by chaff and detritus and clutter in our lives, it's not hellfire and damnation. It's an eternal flame, a pure asbestos. It's all the stuff that I let go of along the way, all the husks of myself that I used for protection, all the parts of my life that I thought I'd never have to look at again. That eternal flame is everybody I've ever loved and lost. And all that chaff in my life, that's not chaff at all. That's fuel. That's fuel for the flame that makes it burn bright and hot, and clean and pure. That's resilience. The Greek is a resilient flame. That's the light by which I find my way home again.